Welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Nino Scalia. Our website is jmp.princeton.edu, and our Twitter handle is at Madison Program. It's great to have you with us. Hello, and welcome back to Madison's Notes. I'm your host, Nino Scalia, and our guest today is John Cribb, a best-selling author whose previous work includes co-authoring The American Patriot's Almanac and The Educated Child, both New York Times bestsellers, co-editing The Human Odyssey, a three-volume world history text, and developing excellent online history courses. During the Reagan administration, he worked at the Department of Justice, the Department of Education, and the National Endowment for the Humanities. John joins us today in celebration of Abraham Lincoln's birthday to discuss his splendid new book, Old Abe, a book former Vice President Mike Pence calls the best book on President Lincoln he has ever read. John, welcome to Madison's Notes. Hi, Nina. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And happy birthday to Abe Lincoln. Um, Old Abe is an historical novel, and we haven't discussed a book like this on this podcast, but I think listeners will quickly understand why this book is not only worth reading, but well worth discussing. But let's start here at the beginning. You're from South Carolina, not known for being a hotbed of Lincoln lovers. Where did your love for Old Abe come from? Well, Lincoln has been a hero from history for me uh, for a long time, ever since I can remember, really. Some of my earliest memories are of sitting on the living room sofa in Spartanburg, South Carolina, where I grew up with my mom and my brother and sister. And my mother did what they tell parents to do. That is, she she read aloud to us a lot when we were young, all kinds of uh, books and stories like the Bobsy Twins, the Boxcar Children, and the uh, old Childcraft series, which you're too young to remember, Nina, but it was a great old collection of stories and poems uh, for young people. And she read from a series called The Childhood, a famous American biography series, including one called Abe Lincoln Frontier Boy by Augusta Stevenson, who was a um, teacher from Indianapolis who wrote a lot of the books in that old series. And I was fascinated by those stories of Lincoln, you know, splitting logs to make fence rails and walking miles through the woods to borrow books and studying by firelight. One of, I remember my mom reading uh, one of the stories that really grabbed me was when he was, uh, I guess, probably a teenager living in Southern Indiana. They lived in a tiny little settlement called Little Pigeon Creek, about 15 or 20 miles from the Ohio River. And his stepmother, Sally Lincoln, had just uh, whitewashed the ceiling of the cabin where they lived. And he played a trick on her while she had her back turned. He, he grabbed a young cousin and dipped his feet in mud and flipped him upside down and you know held him over his head and had him leave those muddy footprints across the ceiling. Um, you know, Fortunately for him, I think his stepmother had a good sense of humor. I yeah. think she probably laughed it off. I'm sure she made him clean it up though. Um, but, you know, these are the kind of things that, that really grab me. And I, uh, I actually have the, uh, the, the volume of the, the Childcraft series that, that mom read to us about uh, from Lincoln. And there's a great old poem in it uh, that really grabbed me when I was young. And it's just four stanzas. So I, I'm going to read it for you if uh, that's okay. It's from uh, Nancy Bird, by Nancy Bird Turner, who was a very popular poet for young people a few decades ago. And it's just titled Lincoln. And it, it goes, there is a boy 
of, uh, there was a boy of other days, a quiet, awkward, earnest lad who trudged long weary miles to get a book on which his heart was set and then no candle had. He was too poor to buy a lamp, but very wise in woodman's ways. He gathered seasoned bough and stem and crisping leaf and kindled them into a ruddy blaze. Then as he lay full length and red, the firelight flickered on his face and etched his shadow on the gloom and made a picture in the room in that most humble place. Mm. The hard years came, the hard years went, but gentle, brave, and strong of will, he met them all. And when today we see his pictured face, we say, there's light upon it still. Wow. Isn't that great? They don't, like, they don't write them like that anymore. But anyway, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing that grabbed me. And it just goes to show with the, the books and stories that we offer young people when they are very young could end up having lifelong impacts. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, these stories certainly had a lifelong impact on you. You've now written a splendid book about old Abe. So why did you write the book? And more specifically, why did you write it in this way as an historical novel and not just a traditional biography? Right. Yes, it is historical fiction. And uh, I should say it, it, it's, it's the story of the last five years of Lincoln's life. So it starts right. in the spring of 1860 when he's nominated for the president. And then you're just at his side every page, every chapter as he goes through his presidency um, and, and the war. Um, but I wrote it. Well, first of all, I wrote it because I love Lincoln and I want others to know him and hopefully love him as I do. But I wrote it as, as fiction for, for probably three or four reasons. Um, one is I do like fiction. I love fiction. I majored in English at, uh, at Vanderbilt University. Uh, so I'm a literature guy like you, Nita. <laughs> and um, I'd always wanted to write to write a novel. Um, and, you know, there are an awful lot of books about Lincoln out there. Yeah. Uh, thousands of books. I think t about 10 years ago, somebody counted the Lincoln books and he counted 15,000. And then Amazing. I think maybe he just stopped. I think that there were more than there. Then there's certainly more now because that was 10 years ago. Yeah. They say more books have been written about Lincoln than anybody in history other than Jesus Christ. And I think that's probably true. But most of them, the overwhelming majority are nonfiction. Mm -hmm. There are comparatively few fiction titles about Lincoln. So I wanted, that's another reason, but the main reason uh, I wanted to do it as fiction is I really wanted to bring Lincoln alive yeah. and make him a walking, talking, breathing fellow, not that stiff image we see on the penny or the $5 bill. And as you know, fiction can do that in ways that, uh, that nonfiction can't. And then I also uh, really with this book want to remind the reader of the heroic service that Lincoln uh, performed for this country, because he really was that giant hero in that epic struggle to, uh, to save the country. Yeah. And if readers can walk with Lincoln uh, through those five years with him at his side in the form of a story, I really think it helps them better understand that, that heroic service that he performed for us. Sure. Now, I, I take the book, I take my copy of the book, and I turn it over. And like you said, it says right there over the barcode, fiction. How much of this book is faithful to the historical record? Well, just about everything in it that you read uh, in old age happened. And I, I had to leave a lot of stuff out, um, of course, because it, as I say, it covers five years and the book is 370 pages long, I think. So, yeah. you know, you can't get five years in 370 pages. Um, so I had to leave a lot of stuff out and I did I condensed some stuff. 
Um, but it's pretty much the story of, of, of what happened. That's one thing I really wanted to do was make it historically accurate. Uh, the, the dialogue is based as much as I could possibly get it uh, on, uh, based on words that uh, the, the, the characters in the novel actually spoke or read. And most of the characters are, were real people. Occasionally I invent a minor character to help move the story along. But you know, most of the characters walking on and off these pages are, are, are people like Mary Todd Lincoln yeah. and uh, you know, Willie and Tad, their two younger sons and Ulysses S. Grant and Frederick Douglass, people like that. Yeah. And as I say, the dialogue, I really mind uh, memoirs and diaries and letters and speeches, uh, things like that. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of old books written by people who had firsthand interactions with Lincoln and, and you know, wrote what he spoke or said or did. Hmm. Um, to try to get the dialogue as close as I as I could um, to to what what the character said. Now, of course, I used my imagination to fill in a lot of the gaps and the details in scenes and action and dialogue, and that's what makes it historical fiction. But um, if you want, I could I could read uh, just a, a bit off of a page uh, to to give you an idea of of what. I'm doing, and I think it'll also give you an idea of the history versus the artistic license. Yeah, the please book. do, please do. All right, so I'm going to read. Uh, I'm going to read just a, a little bit from a uh, chapter that, that comes early in the novel, when um, Lincoln's been elected, but he's still in Illinois. He hasn't left to go to Washington yet, and uh, just before he leaves Washington to take office, he um, he goes out to see his stepmother. Uh, Sarah Bush Johnson Lincoln, also known as Sally Lincoln. And uh, she's living about 80 miles east of Springfield out in Coles County, Illinois, near Charleston, Illinois, on a farm uh, at Goose Nest Prairie. And uh, she's a very important figure in his life. Uh, she, uh, uh, Lincoln's father remarried after Lincoln's mother, Nancy Hanks, died when he was very young. And she becomes a second mother to him. So he takes a series of trains out to tell her goodbye. She's an old lady at this point. And uh, this, I'm gonna read just, just a few paragraphs from the end of the chapter where he actually tells her goodbye. He had not expected to feel so bad about leaving her. They'd seen so little of each other during the past several years. Perhaps he should have made more of an effort. When you're in Washington, think of me in my old log farmhouse, she said. I will, you know I will. For a few seconds, neither said anything. She studied his bearded face, searching perhaps for that raw-boned youth with an ax in one hand and a book in the other. She fought to hold back tears. You never gave me a crossword or look, she said softly. Scarcely one mother in a thousand can say that. You're the best boy I ever saw or ever expect to see. She clung to him, unwilling for him to go just yet. They say there's gonna be a war. Is that true? I don't know, I hope not. If we have a war, I expect it won't last long. Somehow I thought she would never grow truly old, he thought. She always had more strength than anyone I knew, but the vigor in her blue-gray eyes had faded. I don't want you to run for president, Abe. I don't want you to be elected. I'm, I'm, afraid, somebody, so, I'm afraid something will befall you and I'll see you no more. The tears she had been holding back came. They'll kill you, Abe. No, I won't let them do that, he murmured, kissing her forehead. They'll assassinate you, she cried, and I'll never see you again. 
He pulled her tight, wondering if it really would be the last time. No, no, mama, they won't do that. Trust in the Lord and all will be well. Mm. We'll see each other again. All right, so that's the way uh, that chapter uh, that chapter ends. So we know this scene took place because eyewitnesses uh, tell us so. Um, after Lincoln died, his law partner, William Herndon, spent years interviewing people who had known Lincoln uh, in Indiana and Illinois during the earlier part of his life. And uh, one of those people he interviewed was Sally Lincoln, uh, Lincoln's stepmother, and she gave her recollections of that, that meeting. And so did uh, Augustus Chapman, who had married one of Lincoln's cousins. So let me just read to you what, what they said um, about that meeting. Uh, and, and by the way, these interviews that, 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 that William Herndon uh, did over the years, about uh, several years ago, two great historians, uh, Douglas Wilson and Rodney Davis, they collected them in a book uh, called Herndon's Informants. They, Inf Herndon's Informants. Uh, they, they annotated them and edited them. And it's a great resource for um, you know, anybody who loves Lincoln. But here's what Sally Lincoln said about that meeting. She said, Abe never gave me a cross word or look. He was the best boy I ever saw or ever expect to see. I wish I died when my husband died. I did not want Abe to run for president, did not want him elected, was afraid somehow or other, felt in my heart that something would happen to him. And when he came down to see me after he was elected president, I still felt that something would befall Abe and that I should see him no more. And then Augustus Chapman said, the parting between him and his mother was very affectionate. She embraced him and when they parted and she said she would never be permitted to see him again and that she felt his enemies would assassinate him. He replied, no, no mama. He always called her mama. They will not do that. Trust in the Lord and all will be well. We will see you, we will see each other again. Wow. So this gives you an idea of how I really try to incorporate yeah. uh, the words that they said or reportedly said uh, into the dialogue. Now I tell people, um, you know, if you really want to get an accurate quote from Abraham Lincoln, don't quote this book because it is historical <laughs> fiction. You know, for that, you need to go to Alan Gelzo or Michael Burlingame, you know, one of the great Lincoln historians. Um, uh, but that gives you an idea of how I tried to reconstruct these scenes uh, using the descriptions of what, what's been left to us and then my imagination. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, now, on this podcast, we've done a few episodes on Lincoln now. I just think he's he's worth the time. We had Lucas Morrell on to talk about Lincoln's political philosophy and his relationship to the American founding. I heard um, that he a great podcast. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. He's, he's really wonderful. Uh, and he does an excellent job explaining Lincoln's relationship to the American founding. Uh, we had, of course, the esteemed Alan Gelzo, who you just mentioned, uh, director of the Madison Program's Initiative on Politics and Statesmanship and the world's foremost Lincoln scholar. He joined us to discuss Lincoln's Gettysburg address, and you've taken a slightly yeah. different approach, as you've mentioned, and you've brought us Lincoln the man. Lincoln the man. So right. tell us about him. What motivated him? What scared him? What inspired him? Well, uh, you know, it's a big question, a lot of ways to answer, I guess. Um, he was certainly ambitious, for one thing. Um, his, his law partner that I mentioned a minute ago, uh, Billy Herndon, uh, said that he was always calculating, always planning ahead. And, and that he was referring to the earlier part of his life, but he famously said that Lincoln's ambition was a little engine that knew no rest. Yeah, right. Um, and again, that was when he was young. And when Lincoln was young, he was definitely motiva motivated by an ambition to get off the farm. He yeah. did not want to follow in his father, 
Tom Lincoln's footsteps in, in being a farmer. He was motivated to rise in the world, to, to better his condition, as he put it later. And that's what led him into uh, to law and politics. But he always wanted to make a mark. Um, once when he was uh, young, uh, living in Springfield, he just moved to Springfield and he was going through a period where he was, uh, was very depressed. And he told his best friend, Joshua Speed, that um, he, he regretted that he had done nothing to make any human being remember that he had ever lived. And he said mm. that he wanted to link his name to something great and good, to link mm. his name. And years later, uh, when he was president and uh, Josh Speed came to see him in the White House, he told him that he believed that the Emancipation Proclamation had turned out to be that, that thing that he could link yeah. his name to. Um, I don't, I really don't think of him being scared of too much. Um, uh, you know, he certainly wasn't scared to die, that's for sure, because he had assassination threats coming in all the time from the, from yeah. the day he was elected, and he didn't pay a whole lot of attention to, uh, to most of them. And uh, there's a, um, uh, a famous uh, scene that, it, that I, I had included in Old Abe. There a, was a battle up at Fort Stevens on, on the edge of Washington when uh, Jubal Early's uh, Confederate forces were threatening Washington. And Lincoln rode up there and stood on the ramparts while yeah. you know, bullets were flying all around him. Um, I think he worried over uh, some things. You know, sometimes he worried about his honor, his reputation, uh, he, when he was younger, uh, certainly he, he worried about his lack of education and his rustic background. Mm -hmm. He thought that might put him at a disadvantage. But when I think of Lincoln as a man and as a great president, um, I, I tend to think of him in uh, terms of a handful of virtues mm. he possessed that I think really made him a great man and a, and a, great, a great leader. Uh, virtues like perseverance. You know, he was a model of perseverance. And he learned that the hard way growing up on the frontier where you either persevered or, you know, you weren't going to make it. You might, yeah. you might die. One of his earliest memories was of a day he spent uh, planning a field with his, with his dad. Uh, when he was very young, they were living on a farm in Kentucky called Knob Creek. And they spent all day uh, planting this field with corn seeds and pumpkin seeds. And uh, a couple of days later, it rained really hard. And the water came rolling down those hills yeah. around Knob Creek and washed over that field. And it washed all their hard work right. away. And, uh, you know, we can imagine young Abe standing at the edge of his field the next day with his dad looking out over this sea of muddy destruction and his father looking down at him and saying, Abe, we're going to plant it again. And that's just yes. what they had to do. They had to keep going. So he learns perseverance very early on and uh, takes it to the White House with him. And, you know, he probably perseveres through the toughest four years any president has ever had. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he, he used to tell people um, that he was like, when he was president, he, like, he was like a man trying to keep a tent up in a storm. And he got it all up and staked down to the ground and the wind would blow out one of the tent stakes. So he would grab a hammer and, and peg it back down to the ground. And then as soon as he got it in, the wind would blow out another tent stake. So he'd run around to the other side of the tent and peg it back down. And then it would blow out another. So he'd run around to the other side and peg it back down. And he'd tell people, he'd say, that's all I do all day long is I keep pegging away, pegging away. And that's what I mean to keep doing, pegging away, pegging mm. away. So he, he really was a model of perseverance, but lots of other virtues uh, like uh, determination and eagerness to learn. Uh, you know, he just loved learning, even though he had so little formal education. He used to say that his father sent him to school by littles, a little here and a little there. Yeah. And those littles added up to less than one year right. of uh, formal education. That took place in the lock cabin schoolhouses, but he 
loved learning. He really did walk miles through those Indiana Woods to borrow books if he could. And he took that, uh, that intellectual virtue with him to the White House too. And he was brilliant at learning on the job. That's one reason he was such a, a great president. But you know, th there's, a, there's a really a, a basket of, of virtues, uh, uh, compassion. Uh, there's no accident that the man who wrote and signed the Emancipation Proclamation was a man of great compassion. Um, his honesty, I mean, he really, honesty really was an honest, pretty honest guy, believe yeah. it or not, you know. Um, his, uh, his patriotism, uh, his faith. Uh, so they're really, I think, uh, at his core uh, lay a, a set of virtues that made him a great man who lived a great life and a great president. You called Abraham Lincoln there a great man. And of course, old Abe, this book, your book, is the study of a man, one man. And a book like this is out of fashion. Right? We don't study individuals. We study movements, mass processes. We read Howard Zinn and study the people's history, not any one person. The very idea of greatness um, offends our democratic sensibilities. Defend yourself. Why spend time studying a single man? And of course, we shouldn't do so exclusively, but why do so at all? Well, right. And actually, um, you know, it is called the great man approach to the study of history versus, uh, yeah. versus social studies, although the two are not mutually exclusive. Well, I would say, first of all, that we should study individual men and women because, number one, they can influence, they can and do influence the course of history. Uh, they make a difference and sometimes they steer the course of history. Uh, you know, the first example that may jump to mind is, is George Washington, the indispensable man, right? Yeah. You know, what if he had cared more about saving Mount Vernon than uh, putting Mount Vernon at risk and fighting for liberty? Yeah. Or what if somebody else had been in charge after Yorktown and had refused to give up power? I mean, George Washington steered the course of history. Or Abraham Lincoln, you know, what if somebody else had been president willing to say, okay, let's, let's make peace and let the South go be a separate country. Individuals make a difference in history. So that's one reason we should study them. Um, another reason is that studying individuals is usually a lot more interesting than social <laughs> studies by a mile. Yeah. Uh, you know, biography is a wonderful way to, to learn about history. Um, and, and as you mentioned at the outset, I had uh, the privilege several years ago to co-edit uh, with two brilliant uh, people named John Holdren and Mary Beth Klee, a three-volume world history set of uh, textbooks for K for this. It was for high school students, basically. Mm -hmm. And we also uh, designed and edited a curriculum for uh, for K-12 students, an online curriculum. And uh, they were both very biography heavy. You know, stories of Jesse Owens standing up to uh, the Nazi regime at the Berlin Olympics in 1936, or Joan of Arc being led to the stake. Um, biography makes history exciting. And that's, this is a big problem in the way that American history is taught. It's been this way for uh, a few decades now. They've taken the biography out of it. And in doing that, they've taken the story out of it. And that's deadened it for a lot of students. Um, but the, the third reason I'd, I'd say, you know, for studying great lives, uh, good and bad, is that you learn a lot from those lives. So that's why students, all, all students used to read Plutarch's lives. Yeah. You know, it's a standard part of a classical education. 
Uh, if you read about Demosthenes and how he put pebbles in his mouth to learn how to speak, you know, you learn something about perseverance and uh, self-discipline. Or, you know, if you read about Caesar crossing the Rubicon, you learn something about courage, but you also learn something about overweening ambition. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot to learn from individuals. And I think if schools would get back to studying biography more instead of so much social studies, uh, students would get more excited about history and they'd learn more history. Yeah. Uh, going from studying individuals to a very specific sort of individual, a hero, you've spent much of your career, much of your life thinking and writing about what it means to educate young men and women. I see right here on this bookshelf, I have uh, the Book of Virtues, the American Patriots Almanac, and, um, and the Educated Child. And a recurring theme throughout these books, young men and women need heroes. Why? Well, I think that because if you, if you have a hero, the, the, the basic answer is if you have a hero, then you've got somebody that you can hold up for yourself as a model, you know, as a yardstick, uh, so, you know, somebody that you, that you admire uh, for their character, their life, their virtues, their words, their achievements, uh, somebody that can set a standard for you. And I think, I think everybody should have a hero from history. I think, uh, and preferably somebody who's dead and gone, is probably <laughs> better, uh, but somebody from the past who you really can study um, and, and use as a, as a model and a guide. And they are great for young people. And I think all young people should have heroes, but they're great for older people like me too, uh, you know, uh, because we can all use those guides yeah. at, at any time of our life. You know, uh, Leo Tolstoy, the, the great Russian novelist, he, uh, he said once that, that he, would, he admired Lincoln a lot. And he said, Lincoln's greatness expresses itself altogether in his peculiar moral power, mm. and greatness of his character. Mm. And there is a lot to learn from those virtues that Lincoln possessed that I mentioned um, a few minutes ago, like his perseverance and his compassion. Uh, so, you know, if you're looking for a hero from history, just as a plug for Lincoln, if you're looking <laughs> for a hero, you can't do much better than Abraham Lincoln. But, you know, there are lots and lots of great figures from the past that, that people can pick out for themselves and study. As I say, I think everybody ought to have one. Now, these heroes will and do have flaws. They are human. And some of these men and women had or have very great flaws. So how do we acknowledge these flaws and recognize where these men and women might have fallen short while still cherishing them, cherishing people like Lincoln, Washington, Jefferson, or Martin Luther King Jr.? Yeah. Well, I think, first of all, as you say, you do acknowledge them. You, you take yeah. them warts and all, right? You just, right. you do. Um, even our even our heroes, and that makes them more complete human beings when you do that. But I think that that one thing that you don't want to do is try to force 21st century mores hmm. onto people that lived decades or centuries ago. Um, they did not live in our times; they were products of their times. And trying to force our times on them is misguided, and and frankly, it's it's self centered. Uh, in a lot of ways. Um, and if you, if you do that, nobody passes muster. I mean, nobody. But, and you know, if you, you just some examples, I mean, you know, I, the obvious one that jumps to mind are, are racial attitudes. Um, people that lived 200 years ago had very different racial attitudes and they weren't 
they often were not right. I'm not, not excusing them, but they were products of their times. Um, but you know, there, you can think of all kinds of other examples, uh, like people's treatment of the environment. You know, people used to all the time if they needed wood or clear a field, they would just clear cut a field and you know use it and deplete the soil and land, and they just move on. And and you know, the way they treated the land now would not you know meet our expectations today, or the way people uh, regarded child labor uh, was very different. It's not unusual at all for a parent to say to a 10 year old, you know, you're get out in that field or get and go to that factory. I mean, look at Lincoln, you know, like I said, he, he said his father went, sent him to school by little. He, yeah. he, uh, Lincoln spent most of his youth working, not in the field. Today, if, if a parent, if we saw a parent saying to a 10 year old, you know, you're not going to school, you're getting a job or you're, you know, you're, I'm not gonna let you study. You've got to, you got to work. We would say they're being a bad parent. Yeah. So people are, are products of their times and they live within their times, not our time. And we just, we, we have to remember that uh, because as I say, if, if, we, if we force our times on them, then nobody passes muster and we will not too someday when history looks back at us. I think secondly, um, you have to take people in the totality, totality of their lives hmm. and their, their actions. We're all imperfect beings. We all make mistakes. We all do wrong. Uh, so you need to look at those old heroes in terms of the uh, totality of their, their achievements and honor them for that, honor them for, for their achievements and live with the fact that they were imperfect mortals. In the case of Lincoln, um, you know, he, uh, he led the effort to save our country when it was falling to pieces. Uh, he led the effort to defend our founding principles when they were very much in peril. Yeah. And he helped lead the effort to free millions of, of enslaved Americans. Yeah. So, you know, what more do you want? I mean, he, was, <laughs> he was imperfect too, but what more do you want? Yeah. Um, what more do we want? Word association here. Adjectives used to describe this book. Beautiful, inspiring, moving, patriotic, canceled. Yeah. <laughs> Explain. Yeah, so the book um, uh, was recently recently some news about it that uh, that Facebook had canceled Lincoln, and the headlines are not quite accurate as headlines often are. Uh, it was really ads for the book, advertisements for the book, uh, that the publisher tried to uh, put onto Facebook. This this happened uh, last December as we were heading into the Christmas season, and the publisher Republic Book uh, Publishers decided they want to do some social media ads. So they designed a couple of very nice social media ads. And um, they, it was actually just, it was, it was one ad, but they, with two different backgrounds. So the two ads were really the same ad. And they uh, submitted them to Facebook and some other platforms. And Facebook uh, rejected them, which puzzled the publisher and puzzled me because it's a historical novel about Abraham Lincoln. But they have an appeal process. And so we jumped through the hoops that they give you to, to appeal the book. And they, they turned the appeal down and they said, this, these ads will not run. And the reason they gave us was that uh, they violated Facebook's ban on advertisements about social issues, elections, and politics. And this is a ban that Facebook put into place right before the 2020 presidential election. Mm. And it's left in place. I think it's still in, in place uh, now. Um, so uh, this is absurd, obviously. <laughs> 
because this is, as I say, it's a historical novel about yeah. you know, any politics of this novel are, are 19th century politics. Um, we think what happened was that, uh, we're pretty sure, but we're guessing, is that uh, it was the quote from Mike Pence that tripped up an algorithm or yeah. uh, an ad check or probably both. Uh, the quote from Mike Pence saying this is the best Lincoln book he'd ever read. And maybe the, the, the quote from Bill, all the ad was was three quotes. The quote from Mike Pence that you read a while ago, and then the one from Bill Bennett you read yeah. a while ago, and then one from a, 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 another review of the book. Um, so we think it was, was probably the Mike Pence quote that somebody or something did not like. And my point about it was that this is the kind of collateral damage that you get when these big tech firms start to make these sweeping rules that affect millions of people about what can and cannot be said yeah. in the public square. And that's, that's the serious point about it uh, because that's what they're doing now. And the more they do that, the more they try to police the public square and like it or not, social media is a big part of our public square now. Uh, the more they start laying down these rules, the more of this kind of collateral damage you're gonna get, more and more people are gonna get caught up in the net. Yeah. And I don't think people are going to like that very much. No, I, I don't think so. Um, when we talk about these ridiculous cancellations, like the school district in San Francisco voting to rename schools named after Lincoln, Washington, Jefferson, and others, it's just so easy to laugh at it and point out how stupid, how stupid it all is. Abraham Lincoln didn't care about Black lives. The Abraham Lincoln who freed the slaves, saved the Union, and was murdered for it, that Abraham Lincoln get real. We laugh and then we move on. You caution us, though, not to merely laugh at the absurdity of it all and scroll to the next news story. It's not merely absurd, you say. It's dangerous. Why is it dangerous? Yeah, it is dangerous um, because uh, I think that, well, because this pattern is spreading and growing, and there seem to be uh, some significant number of people in this country, a significant portion of people who are running institutions, you know, important, big, important institutions uh, in places like Silicon Valley, but also, you know, government agencies and universities, some editorial boardrooms, uh, people who have, seem to have lost sight of what free speech really is. And, you know, free speech is supposed to be a bedrock principle uh, in our country. Um, and free speech is free speech. And this country was founded to be a place where competing ideas meet in the public square. That's what we're supposed to be. Yeah. But some of these people, somewhere along the way, they have learned or have been taught that if somebody says something that makes them feel unsafe or, or triggers them or they don't like it or uh, they think it maybe it's quote unquote disinformation, then those people should be canceled or silenced or deplatformed. And that, you know, Nina, that's not what this country is supposed to be about. If I can um, uh, give you another uh, great Lincoln quote, um, and you're not gonna find this, this one in old age because it, it, it's before the timeline in, uh, in my book, and it took, but it, took, it, it comes right after the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Hmm. Remember those debates come in 1858, and uh, Abraham Lincoln is running for the U.S. Senate against uh, Stephen Douglas in Illinois. And they have these seven debates in seven towns across the state of Illinois, you know, Lincoln and Douglas slugging it out over the great issues of the day, especially 
uh, especially slavery. Um, and Lincoln is arguing that, of course, that slavery is wrong and it's an evil and it needs to be kept out of the Western territories. And Douglas is arguing, arguing that the people of those territories should decide whether or not they want slavery, his, his, his doctrine of popular, popular sovereignty. Right. As he, uh, as he called it. So, um, you know, Lincoln loses that election mm -hmm. for, uh, for the Senate. He actually wins the popular vote, but uh, back then the legislatures, uh, you know, uh, elect the senators and uh, Douglas has enough people in the state legislature to return him to the Senate. So Lincoln loses the election. Um, and the next year when it was all over, you know, looking back at it, um, Lincoln, uh, you know, said he was, of course, disappointed that he didn't win, but he said it was okay. It was okay, he said. It was still worth it. And here's what he told uh, David Locke. Uh, David Locke was a humorist uh, who wrote under the pen name Petroleum Nasby. He was one of Lincoln's favorite right. humorists. And uh, this is what he told uh, Locke in 1859. He said, slavery is doomed, and that within a few years. Even Judge Douglas admits it to be an evil, and an evil can't stand discussion. He mm. says, an evil can't stand discussion. He said, in discussing it, we have taught a great many thousands of people who hate it. I'm sorry, we, we've taught a great many thousands of people to hate it, who would have never given it a thought before. Mm. Lincoln says, what kills the skunk is the publicity it gives itself. What a skunk wants to do is to keep snug under the barn in daytime when men are around with shotguns. <laughs> that a great quote? It's a wonderful quote. Yeah. So Lincoln knew that the way to defeat a bad idea or an evil idea is free speech. You defeat it through debate in the public arena. You don't try to cancel it or to deplatform de it if you think it's wrong or bad. That's just giving the skunk what it wants to stay yeah. snug under the barn. And this is, this, is, this is one reason the founders protected free speech. We need to get, you know, we need to get back to the business of protecting speech in this country, not, not canceling it. So the next time, but you know, the next time you hear about people wanting to cancel somebody for what they said or deplatform them, just remember what Lincoln said, that an evil can't stand discussion. And, you know, the people that are, are, are thinking, are, are, are urging that speech be canceled um, and don't like discussion, that might inform you uh, yeah. to some degree. Yeah. You, you write that Lincoln rendered heroic service to a nation that seemed hopelessly divided. We are divided today. To many, our nation seems to be hopelessly divided. Three questions for you as we draw to a close here. One, do we need another Lincoln? Two, can we find another Lincoln? And three, what would this new Lincoln need to do? Well, I'm not sure that I know the answers to those questions. I wish I, wish I did. Um, but, you know, I think, as I recall, I listened to that wonderful podcast with, uh, with uh, Dr. Gelza last July that you did. And as I recall, you asked him a similar question yeah. uh, at, at the end of it. And I really don't think I could possibly improve on, on what he said. And if any of your listeners haven't listened to that podcast, 
I uh, urge them to go back and listen to it because not only is it one of the best discussions of the Gettysburg Address I've ever heard in my life, uh, but you uh, you will also want to hear Dr. Galzo's uh, really marvelous, passionate thoughts of the, on uh, Lincoln's attempt to to heal the divided nation. Yeah. Um, I don't know if we'll get a new Lincoln anytime soon. Uh, you know, who knows? But but while we're waiting for that that new Lincoln, we still have the old Lincoln, and. Yeah. Um, you know, any president or any leader can can learn from him. Uh, Lincoln, you know, he he closed his first inaugural address with that famous paragraph that talks about the mystic chords of memory yeah. and the better angels of our, our nature. It's a beautiful poetic paragraph. But he starts that paragraph with some very uh, simple words. He says, we are not enemies, but friends. We yeah. must not be enemies. That's very plain language. It's the kind of language that Lincoln specialized in, you know, the, the kind of language that any prairie farmer uh, could could understand. And we we need to hear uh, that that language. We are not enemies, but friends. Um, how often today do we we see our political leaders, especially from opposite sides of the aisle, standing up next to each other and saying something like that and actually mean it? Not not often, not often enough. And, uh, you know, people do take cues from their leaders and we need to hear those words from our leaders. We need to hear them a lot. We need to hear them consistently over and over again. I think that would help. Um, we need to hear them from the president uh, on down. And then they need to walk the talk, yeah. which, which Lincoln could do. One of my favorite stories about uh, Lincoln is one I tell toward the, uh, the end of old Abe. Uh, that took place in April 1865, very near the end of the war. Um, he spent several days uh, visiting the army at City Point, Virginia, where they had established a huge supply depot as, uh, just, just to the east of Petersburg, just to the east of the front. And um, at one point while he was there, he went to visit the depot field hospital to visit wounded soldiers there. It was a, a big complex with you know these great big tents. They could treat up to 10,000 wounded wow. uh, soldiers. So he went inside, um, uh, you know, some of the tents and starts to greet the soldiers and, and, and offer comfort. And at one point, uh, he goes over toward a group of tents that are kind of set aside. And a young uh, soldier sees him heading that way. And he says, Mr. President, you don't want to go over there. And he says, he says, why not? And the young fellow says, well, that's where the wounded rebel prisoners are being kept. Yeah. And Lincoln says, that's exactly where I want to go. Yeah. And so he goes into the tent and, um, uh, I'm going to, if it's okay, I'll just read you one more place from, uh, from old Abe, just a few lines describing that. It's, uh, he went inside and moved down the rows of cots, bowing and saying good morning to the surprised Confederates. A colonel who lay with his knees drawn up and arms folded across his chest gave him a frown. Mr. President, do you know who you're offering your hand to? The man asked. I do not. You offer your hand to a Confederate colonel who has fought you as hard as he could for four years. Abraham nodded and looked more closely. The fellow had been shot in both hips. Well, I hope a Confederate colonel will not refuse me his hand, he said. The suspicion drained out of the man's face and there was only weariness left. No, sir, I will not, he said, and they clasped hands. I hope you will soon be restored to health and your family, Abraham told him. Uh, that story uh, comes to us from uh, a fellow named uh, uh, Colonel Henry Lawrence 
uh, Benbow, that, that, that wounded Confederate. Uh, he was from South Carolina, like me, and he, he related that story after the war. You know, I just think it's a wonderful story about reaching across a divide at a very, very uh, divided times. So I, I hope that more of our leaders uh, will, as I say, take a cue from Lincoln and act more like that. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, a final question for you. The Abraham Lincoln we meet in this book is, as the title says, Old Abe. We meet the man as he is preparing to enter the crucible, to fight the war, to win the war, to save the Union, and give his life in the process. What about the 50 years leading up to this, the formative years that made him the man who could and did bring us through that trial? Will you write about young Abe, the rail splitter? I hope so. I hope to. I actually have a manuscript and uh, it needs some massaging and it, it needs some, some work. But, um, it, you know, the, my original plan for this book was to be a giant, you know, James Misher type book that, that started him off as a teenager on that southern Indiana frontier and, and takes mm. him all the way to the end. And that just turned out to be too unwieldy for me. So I zeroed in on these last five years, the, the presidential years um, and, and right before them. But uh, I really want to do the earlier part of his life because it, to me, in many ways, it's the most fascinating uh, part of his life, just how he got from a log cabin out there on the, the frontier uh, to the White House and how he became the great man that he, he, he did. So uh, hopefully... Uh, if, if this book, Old Abe, does well enough, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll do the first part of his life next, the, the backstory, the prequel. Yeah. yeah. Right. And when you do that, we'll have to have you back on the podcast to discuss Young Abe. Our guest today has been John Cribb. I encourage everyone to go get a copy of Old Abe and read it, to buy a copy for your family and friends and encourage them to read it. It's such a splendid book. Uh, John, thank you so much for joining us today on Madison's Notes. Thank you for having me, Nina. I really do appreciate it. Well, there you have it, Madisonians. John Cribb on Old Abe here on The Great Emancipator's Birthday. I really can't recommend John's book highly enough. As Bill Bennett, the great former Secretary of Education under President Reagan, puts it, quote, This novel turns that copper face into a walking, talking, breathing fellow. And we walk right beside him through the most catastrophic years in American history. John Cribb has brought Lincoln to life for us. We are with him for every blow and triumph of his journey and come to know his heart and soul as he fights to save the Union." End quote. I can't put it any better than that. Happy birthday, Mr. Lincoln, and thank you all for joining us today here on Madison's Notes. <laughs>